This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Sandra Stemple. She was raised one of six children by a father, Rudolph Valentino Stemple, who taught her the value of perseverance, and by a mother, Sheila Catherine Stemple, who flew solo as a young woman and wrote a poem for every one of her children's birthdays. Both have stood her in good stead. Stemple has persevered through two kidney transplants and incorporates her own poetry into her weekly Burn library columns for the Enterprise. She will soon be the Burn Town Historian, a role in which she plans to record the stories of local people. Everybody out there has a story, she says, and they should be told. I'm just going to give our listeners a little preview of what they can expect in this week's paper. She starts out by saying, Blooming poinsettia plant readers, <laughs> exclamation point, gets your attention right away. Now is a fine time to appreciate the power of the potted plant. Love the alliteration. Or to get your seeds started in your indoor containers. I mean, nothing about that introductory paragraph is what you'd expect in a library column. And then she goes on to quote Broccoli Spear. Broccoli Spear is a created character who appears from time to time in the column and has things to say. And this week she's saying, it's true. Poinsettias will grow their red bracts again. It's just like you have a sense of a person talking to you, and it's a created character. So now I'm going to try to plumb the depths of Sandra's creative brain to see how do you come up with these things? Mm, that's a good question. Well, Broccoli Spear is a, an alias for a real person. Really? Yes, it is. Okay. So someone you know who is a, a, a gardener, and oh. you've just created this character for us. Yes, yes. I like to keep things a little mysterious. Yes, they're often mysterious. One of my favorite parts of your column is the Word of the Month Club. Oh. I just love the way you create this dialogue among, I'm assuming, imaginary people. Uh, tell us a little about how you came up with the idea of a Word of the Month Club. How did I come up with the Word of the Month Club? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I don't know if I really should say this, but there, when you you have a job and they they are checking on you to see how you're doing a job evaluation. They, they have excellent, good needs, help, whatever. And they couldn't give me an excellent because nobody can get an excellent in their job evaluation. So I got thinking about it and it kind of perturbed me a little bit that a person couldn't be considered excellent. And I kind of channeled my father my father would have responded, that is a bunch of bull. And 
he would have reacted and done something about it. So I created the Word of the Month Club, and the first word was excellent. And the words, as they come out, I tend to try to use them each month. And I wonder if you have people all over Burn using a certain word because you've written about it. So how do you come up with what the word is? Well, I always try to find something positive, and a lot of times I'm relating to things that are happening around me or something that I've read that inspires me. Well, I look forward every month to seeing what the word is and then trying to use it. I think too often we get used to our normal vocabulary and don't stretch it. So I just think it's an excellent thing for a library to do, you know, to introduce words and and get us to think about them and use them. Well, you just mentioned your father, and I think he's a well-known, almost an icon in the Hilltowns. And um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little about what it was like growing up in Rudy Stemple's household. (laughs) Well, when I was first growing up, I didn't know my father that well because he was off working all the time, and my mother took care of us, and guided our thinking and the only time we saw our father was at dinner time and and uh, or or my mother would say if you don't if you don't behave wait till your father gets home and he'll take care of it so we were kind of afraid of him well I was but then when I after I got home from college he said something about working at the mill and I said yeah I could help out for a little while while he was trying to pay off the mill. So that was like, it would have been four years and that was 40 years ago. So I was able to work with my father for close to 40 years and I got to know him and it was just a wonderful experience that I was able to, that he just persevered no matter what kind of challenges he faced. It, It just inspired me to be the best person I could be. Yeah, I I obviously didn't know him the way you did, but I was always so struck with, I remember near the end of his life when one of his major pieces of equipment went, he just pulled out an, an antique piece and went on about oh my gosh. You know, doing his business. We thought we were done because it was 2010 and the, the mill collapsed on top of the sawmill. And within oh, 10 yeah, there days, was a snowstorm. I came, I came to the mill that morning, and I said, "Oh, we're finished." And within ten days, he had everything dug out. Working neighbors coming and helping us, and all the people that worked for us helping us. It was just incredible. Pulled all the roof off the sawmill and carried it away. <laughs> it was just amazing. And then a year later, the motor of the mill blew up. So we're able to work with no roof for a year, covering everything up with tarps at the end. And we had the original mill, which is a has handset where you, you stand and you're doing everything manually, where the upper mill was an automatic. And my brother and him and, and myself all worked to pull the roof off of that mill because that had collapsed, but it, it collapsed in such a way that the mill was was not damaged, so they he's, he got everything working. Well, Brian did most of the work while my father sat there because we didn't know at the time, but he was 
slowly deteriorating. And I think one of the reasons was seeing how the mill had collapsed and then the motor blew up. But he sat there yeah. day, day after day watching as Brian and giving him a little advice along the way. And he always said, you know, you never know unless you try. Well, that's a good philosophy to live by. And he he had a nickname. People would call him Rough Cut Rudy. And he, he was just known far and wide. I mean, off the hill, uh, people that just admired him, not just because of the lumber that they got from him, but his character. I know being a Republican in a largely Democratic town and he was elected town supervisor and just sort of cut his own path, you know? Um, oh, yeah. I like that. He, he, he didn't like the one-party system that existed up here, so every, in his, when he was growing up, everybody was de- registered Democrat, so at some point he decided to register Republican. I don't really know that part of the story, but I know what happened. He was elected twice as the supervisor. And yeah, that's quite... And he tried an accomplishment. He worked with, he tried to work with people rather than having his own individual agenda. He worked with all people like they were equal. That's another good model to live by. Um, And sadly, we don't see a lot of that today. Um, You mentioned growing up, it was your mother who guided you. And I think and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I've seen in your columns, and shoot, I thought I had printed that one out here, where you have actually used some of your mother's poetry under the name of S.R.S. Is that your mother? There was one on Halloween that you included in your column, and I thought it might be your mother because she was Sheila Rapp's stemple. Um or am I am I hitting this? Am I not hitting this correctly? You, you struck out on that one, Melissa. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, it was, so, it's SLS, and that's me, Sandra oh, Lee. So those are your own poems. I knew a lot of them were, but I just thought when I saw the SRS, it was a Halloween poem. I thought, oh, I bet that's your mother. But it's you. No, it been, but tell us about your mother. It should have been SLS. It's SL. Uh, and her, okay. she was SCS, Sheila Catherine. Oh, she used the Catherine, not her maiden name, the rap. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I did strike out on that one, but let's talk about your mother anyway, <laughs> because she, too, was an incredible person that um, had reached far beyond her home in the community. Um, and you said she's the one that guided you and... All, all of her children. So, just tell us a little about her. Well, I can't, I can't get over how she went from living in the city, a city girl, and moved up here in the country into her in-laws' home and, mm-hmm. and survived. I said, "Oh my God, how could you, how could you do that?" And the people that she moved in with, her mother-in-law was, my uh, guess, both. They were Czechoslovakian, so they didn't speak English. But she she got to know the, the language, so the the mother in law and her sister were there talking in in their language, and my mother's laughed, and 
the, the mother-in-law said, oh, you know what we're saying? She says, yes, yes, I do. And they said, well, we might as well speak English then. So she, <laughs> she, she was very sharp and she, she did all the, the bookkeeping here, learning it as she, as she went. It's just, and she, she was an incredible, incredible lady. She got her pilot's license when she was a young woman before they got married. And I, I don't know how people can take care of that many children. Six children. Yeah, I can't imagine that myself. How, how, well, you lived in the middle of it, so you must have an idea. How did she do it? How did she do all those meals? I, I think about that constantly when she, when she broke her hip and I wound up being the caretaker. When I first got her home, my first thought was, how am I going to be able to feed her every, every meal? Because she couldn't do it herself. And I just just did it because that's how my parents were. When you had trouble, you just did it. You did what you had to do. And that's, I mean, through losing her son to suicide and and just continuing on, no matter what they faced, it, just, it was a wonderful upbringing with them. She got involved with the historical society. She was in the garden club. There was a gar- Heldeberg Garden Club up here. She was very involved in all kinds of organizations. She was, uh, I know she was because she would send notices into our newspaper, and I was always amazed at just the range of her interests. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I remember once she told me, when you're talking about the meals, she told me it was like your father had an alarm clock in his stomach. <laughs> He needed his meals at exactly what, I don't remember the times, maybe noon and five o'clock. But the idea being that it was, you know, the the food had to be ready. You often heard the the saying that my father said, what's going to be, or is dinner ready? And she goes, it's not five o'clock yet. (laughs) Yeah. He had to wait Uh, until five o'clock. But she did. She had meals. At noon and five o'clock, but she did not do breakfast. That was said at the get-go. You were on your own for breakfast. Well, that it's, that's an easy meal to fix for yourself, you know, <laughs> cereal or toast, so you don't have to worry. But you mentioned her interest in history, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because you are about to become the Burn Town historian, and... I just would love to hear kind of how either your mother or your father or growing up in Bern shaped you to care about history. That's an interesting thing. You just don't even even seem to think about history for myself growing up. And it wasn't probably till my 30s after going to a few of the historical society meetings and then and then doing a book with my father that the library had sponsored about different seniors in the town and trying to drag the story of his life out of him that I was even more interested in what goes on in people's lives that you think you know but there's so much that has happened to them that there's no way you could know everything so my mother and my father both would tell stories and that kind of kept piquing the interest. 
And of course, they were saying, oh, we should write this down. But they never did. But fortunately, with my father, they did that project. And we did get a lot of stuff written down about things that I never would have learned if that hadn't happened. So then as time went on, I just became more and more interested because I know that everybody out there has a story. And they should be told and just to be enjoyed for future generations. And I know everybody yes. has secrets, too. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, as a newspaper person, I, I share your belief that everybody has a story and they should be told. They often say newspapers are the first take of history. And there's a famous thought that if we don't know our history, we are going to be repeating it rather than moving forward in an informed way. So just tell us a little about the Historical Society. And also, I don't know if everyone knows about the rooms in the town hall, what was the old hotel in town. Can you just tell us a little about that? Well, yeah, it's actually the 50th year of the of the, that museum, the Burr Historical Museum. This is they they originally opened their opening day was November 11th, 1970, but then they started having open every weekend starting in May of 1971. So the woman who spearheaded it was Alberta Wright. She was a teacher and she got a lot of her teacher friends to pull together and they made a beautiful setup upstairs. They had to go to the town board and get permission to use the rooms, which had been filled since it was a hotel. There were beds and all kinds of things stored in the room. So they got together, cleaned out all the rooms, pulled all kinds of donations into each room. And the opening day, I guess there were well over 200 people that passed through the rooms. So it was quite... There were a lot of people involved in the beginning, and now most of those people are gone. But it's a an amazing collection of artifacts, and I think there's at least eight rooms up there that they designated to a different area of life in the... I don't know what time period off the top of my head, but... We tried... We tried like within the last couple of years, since actually since my mother died, it's been hard for me to keep going with it. But I think it, we have to get people going on it again. When you can open museums, be able to share them with people, share all the information, and hopefully maybe get a video of each room so that people can see it online. Yes, we're all kind of on pause now, but it makes us think of other ways to do things. So that's a neat idea, a video. So just describe what, say, one of the rooms is like. I have not been there. I'm embarrassed to tell you. A lot of people haven't been in there. My mother, uh, when Kevin Crozier was supervisor, (laughs) that's one of the things she did. She went after him and had him come upstairs and see the rooms. He'd never seen them before. And then she, (laughs) she got... $5 out of them to be or to be a member of the 
the historical society. So the children's room, oh my goodness, all kinds of toys and musical instruments. There's a bicycle in there with wooden, wooden wheels on it. And there's the magic lantern where it's got these slides that you put into the magic lantern and it's like a projector on the wall. You put the slide in upside down and it comes in, of course, right side up. And then some of them you can move a little lever and it, may, it makes a figure move in when you're seeing it on the wall. A cabinet display that I guess was a candy candy cabinet and what might have been in one of the the stores that had been in town that are no longer there. So there's a lot of places that, that existed that aren't there that I would like to see something saved and written about so that people can look back and read about those things that existed in the town back in the day. <laughs> That's a wonderful idea. It seems like there's kind of a common thread in some of your major passions because local history and then being so involved in the local library and this thread of reading and writing running through it because you just said to have something saved and written about. It's a, it's a way of recording things so people understand where they come from and who they are. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. An another thing that I wanted to ask you about, because um, as we were discussing what picture to run of you um, with this in the paper, you mentioned one that Marcello had taken uh, several years ago of you up at the sawmill, and you're holding this brand new pair of sneakers. And writing had run through that as well, because um, you had written an essay that won an award um, about those sneakers. And since we're running that picture with this podcast, I wonder if you could just tell the story of those sneakers for people that might not have read the paper. I think it was maybe back in 2013 um, when you wrote that really moving essay. Oh, yeah. That was the year after my father died. So you wanted to know about the essay, what I wrote about? Yes, yes. I might start crying. <laughs> uh, the essay was with a, it's a group that involves uh, people with kidney disease. And they wanted to know a story about a healthcare worker that was a, a star in your life. <clears throat> And oh gosh. <clears throat> so I had this one social worker who could see what's going on in people's lives and I never I didn't I had this pair of shoes that were they had holes in the bottom and I was embarrassed to wear them but I just really didn't have the money to buy a new pair of shoes. So I was having one of my dialysis treatments one day and they came in and <clears throat> they said they <clears throat> gave me $50 to be able to go out and buy a new pair of shoes because they noticed what was going on. And 
there are other people closer to me in my life that never noticed that. And just the fact that they noticed that and wanted to me and wanted me to be in a better position. They came in and gave me that money and I just was, I just started crying because it was such a wonderful thing that they did. <clears throat> so I went and got myself a new pair of shoes and, and I wrote about that in the story and how it just gave me such confidence and a new spring in my step when I got that new pair of shoes. It's a wonderful story, and you told it so well. I just thank you, and I'm sorry if it was hard to tell, but it's so nice to share stories of generosity. I mean, I'm jaded because in the business I'm in, we always have terrible stories to tell, and here's just a really lovely story. But you mentioned early on in our conversation about perseverance and how your father taught you that. And it's just so much you've been through with your kidneys and you take it so matter of factly um, that I I find it inspiring myself. I, I don't know if you want to share with people. I think you once wrote a letter to the editor um, about Lucinda. <laughs> you called uh, it this, yeah. your, your new kidney. My second um, kidney. My first kidney. kidney well, my first kidney that I kidney transplant came from my brother Brian. And when I first, when I found out that I was either had to get a kidney transplant or go on dialysis, he he soaked that right in, and he offered me his kidney up. It was upstairs in the house, and I remember it just, I mean, I can visualize it so perfectly. I said, oh, they'd, they'd never take your kidney like that. <laughs> so later in the day, I said, you know, I'd be happy to take your kidney, and not even knowing what I was going to be getting into. But that was successful, a successful operation that lasted 11 years. Believe it or not, 11 years, 11 months, and 11 days. And then I went back on dialysis for eight years. And I didn't really want to go back on the transplant list because I didn't think that I'd be able to afford the medicine that you have to take for the rest of your life. So I didn't have as good insurance the second time around. So I was... In the in the hallway, one at one of my hospitalizations, I was in the hallway and I actually saw the surgeon that did my transplant the first time. Oh, my first kidney was named Bartholomew, by the way. <laughs> and how did wait? How did you come up with that name? That I don't know. It was just like a. It just was there. <laughs> oh, that's great. So you were in the hospital hallway and you saw the surgeon, and what happened? He says, "What are you doing here?" Hey, you, what are you doing here? Which I know he said, hey, you, because he didn't really know what my name was. <laughs> so I said, oh, I'm looking for a kidney. And he says, well, call my secretary and we'll set you up for an appointment. And that's how it happened. I I went and started doing all the testing you had to do. I had one more test to do, which I finally got through. And I went to visit my sister, Catherine. And I said, yes, I've, I've been put on the transplant list. This is like in, I'll say, March. I was visiting this. I said, yeah, I'm on the transplant list, but it'll probably be 
several years before I'll even get a call. Well, I got home from her house. I was getting ready to do my treatment at home. I did my dialysis at home. And I got a phone call, but I, I didn't answer it right away. And I said, well, I better better answer, answer that. And it was the hospital telling me that they might have a kidney for me. And that was like a month and a half after I was on the transplant list. So I went in and it was a... It was a wasn't a, it was a match. So they said they never they don't think they would see another one like that in twenty years, and they wanted to know if I wanted to do go have this operation. I said, well, if if you as my doctor say that it it's a good idea, then I guess I'll do it. And so that was in two thousand fourteen, and I named and that kidney Lucinda, but then found out later that it was a a man who had passed who had died, and so I have to rename that kidney. <laughs> But isn't isn't that interesting? You have names for your kidneys. They they kind of you, you personify them. Like there's something in you that is part of something else. I think that's fascinating. Do you have yeah, like conversations with Lucinda, or just the way your mind works in these columns that you write? You know, where you have created. Broccoli Spear or some of your other characters in the naming club. Right. right. That's fun. You got to have fun. Melissa. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I our time has gone so fast. There were so many more things I wanted to ask you. But do you have any kind of closing thoughts for people? You often in your column encourage us. You never lecture. You don't, you're not pedantic at all in your columns, but you often encourage us to read and to write, um, like in this column that is in this week's paper, you know, you're encouraging people to get out in nature now that the, the weather is finally turning a bit and to what I'm trying to find your phrase, um, this is a great time of year, you write, to notice quiet changes moving about you. Mm. And then you refer us to a book that I had never heard of that I looked up and it sounds wonderful. One day in the woods where a young girl is searching for this elusive oven bird that her husband, that her uncle says is a wizard. And then yes. she spies other wizards. And it's just a wonderful story. And yet you also are encouraging people to keep a journal in their own nature book. If you could just kind of close us out with some thoughts on why, why it is that reading and writing is so important to you and could be good for all of us. I remember when one of your columns, you wrote about a friend that never reads a book. <laughs> and you just I know. Kind of, I know. Maybe, yeah. maybe someday I'll read a book, she said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that kind of blew me away. I was, I could not, I can't believe people haven't read books, but it's true. There are a lot of people who don't read books and Right now, my sister and I are on a quest of reading 100 books this year. So, I, oh, yeah. Reading is very, very important. And one of my, I, I think that you, there's so much change that could occur in yourself by jumping into reading. And writing also helps you discover who you are, in my opinion. 
And it, yeah, it, it does. Um, and what about the poems? I know I wanted to talk more about your poems that you write in the columns. Where do they come from? How is it you you do that? I wish I could tell you. I do not know. <laughs> it just it just happens. You sit there and you and they just flow into your head. It's almost really? magic. Well, it's almost magical to me. <laughs> I just think poetry is so important, and for so long, it was just a very small group of people in our modern times in our country that paid attention to it. And I'm hoping with Amanda Gordon reading or reciting that wonderful poem at the inauguration that so many people seem to respond to, that maybe more Americans will start thinking about poetry and reading it and feeling it. I mean, can you just talk about why that is important or works for well, you? What, what you just said um, made give me a revelation of some of my poetry. My mother was always writing poetry. Every birthday card you got, she wrote a, po- a poem in it. And <laughs> so maybe that some of that has filtered into my life. And, and, and it also, my nephew, her grandson is, is a poet who goes to, he's very expressive and goes to these poetry slams, I guess they're called. So I, I never really read poetry growing up, but her poems were always very expressive. And <laughs> I'm glad you said that. I forgot all about that. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Sandra. I've really enjoyed this. And I look forward every week to your column. And um, just thank you. (laughs) It was was fun. 